0: So, Father, I thank you that uh, in that story, uh, there were two prodigal sons. All the sons were prodigal, and you meet all of them. In fact, in the end, you're standing in the outer darkness with that religious one pleading with him. And so, uh, Lord, would you uh, plead with our spirits, and maybe, Lord, you would even preach the message. We pray that, Lord Jesus, we would hear what you have to say. It's in your name that we pray, amen. Amen. So uh, there was a foot of snow at my house this morning and I know some aren't here, but most of our congregation really watches online, either uh, at our our Facebook thing, but usually not live because that doesn't carry everything, but we have this uh, Relentless Love Facebook page and then there's the Peter Hyatt YouTube channel that's called that so people uh, find it and then our Relentless Love website and then some people also um, listen to the podcast. And if you listen to the podcast, particularly in this message, I've got a lot of images. So uh, hopefully you, you can picture those. And I use images from other messages because I want you to connect the dots so that all these messages, I think, uh, fit together. But we've been preaching through First Peter this is our third message from First Peter, 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, so he's building on what he said before, okay? Uh, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct Uh, And you heard that maybe uh, for for the first time, read that maybe for the first time. Or maybe for the millionth time. At first, you probably heard a bunch of religious gobbledygook. Some theological contradictions like he judges according to our works. A few phrases jumped out at you like, if you call him father, conduct yourself with fear and ransomed with blood. And you probably thought, I know what he's saying. He's saying, if you call him father... Conduct yourselves with fear. For if you don't call him father and aren't holy as he is holy, well then he's not your father. And the only way that he could ever be your father is if he made somebody else bleed instead of you. It's ironic, but most American Christians have come to believe that the Bible is all about family values. Like this painting that I have always loved, Norman Rockwell Mom and dad are serving the Thanksgiving turkey, and everyone is smiling. Most American Christians have come to believe that the Bible is all about family values. And so, number one, your family should look like this. And number two, our father is at war with whatever would be a threat to this, and so we should also be at war with whatever should be a threat to this. For number three, if we become a threat to this, we'll be exiled. From this, and forever tortured because of this, so that we so we better just now smile and act like we love this for fear that Dad will never ever 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 love us. And so, number four, most of the world thinks that we are a profoundly dysfunctional family—a family that may look like this on the outside but is, in reality, just the opposite on the inside, for Dad smiles, but he keeps his finger on a red button. Just like this. Look what you did to Mr. Brigglesworth! But, Dr. Evil, we were unable to anticipate feline complications due to the reanimation process. Silence! Oh. Let this be a reminder to you all that this organization will not tolerate failure. Ah, 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 ah. Gentlemen, let's get down to business. So maybe, maybe we should fear, fear God. And I'm convinced that God really is all about family values. And so I actually do think that we should focus on the family. In the 1980s, I was a new dad, and I loved to listen to Focus on the Family Radio, for Dr. Dobson had all sorts of helpful advice about marriage and parenting and blessing everyone at the dinner table. Sometimes he would interview guests, and and one day, I don't know if you remember this, and I really don't know how he swung this, he interviewed Jesus. He said, wow, Jesus, it's such an honor to have you here on the show because we're all about traditional American family values, you know, the good old days. And Jesus responded, say not why were the former days better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this, Jim. Um, uh, okay, uh, right, said Dr. Dobson. And I noticed that you just quoted Solomon, the son of David, your, your forefather. We're all about the faith of our forefathers. Tell us about your forefathers, Jesus. All who came before me were murderers and liars, said Jesus. Dr. Dobson says, wow, you did say that in John 10, didn't you? But, but Jesus, you had a mother. Tell us about your mom. I bet she was a saint. And Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers, Jim? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Dr. Dobson said, um, yeah, uh, okay. Well, maybe then, Jesus, you could tell us about the family life of some of your disciples. If anyone does not come to me and hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Copson said, huh. Okay, um, well, we're working for better families here at Focus on the Family. What's your agenda for the family? Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth, said Jesus. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes will be those in his own household. And that that Dr. Dobson, I mean, said, "Well, well, look at that, we're out of time. And then they cut to a Christian fire insurance commercial. Couldn't believe it. End of the interview. Well, Dr. Dobson didn't really interview Jesus on Focus on the Family. I made that up. But maybe he should have. Or maybe he shouldn't have. I mean, Jesus seems to have had some really strange family values. And whenever he did focus on the family, it always seemed to be the wrong family. John 8, Jews say to him, I love this. Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? And Jesus responds, Well, I don't have a demon but I honor my father. See, the Samaritans were wrong the, fam- the wrong family. Not of the tribe of Judah, the Jews, but of the tribes of the other Samaritans and a kind of a bunch of half-breeds. And Jesus acts as if dad, his dad was, was their dad. Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman, and you remember who the Canaanites were, asked Jesus for help. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she pleads with him. So, Jesus compliments her faith and says, Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter is healed. And so it was revealed that she, because he only does what his fathers do, she was a lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the Sermon on the Mount, to a group just on a hillside composed of who knows what families and tribes, Jesus says, When you pray, and you just did this, say, Our Father. If we all have one Father, then we're all part of one family. But if you point that out, do not expect peace. You can expect a sword or a knife or maybe even a crucifixion from your own family, your tribe. The Bible really is all about family, and yet it's really hard to find any family in the Bible who looks like that perfect family in the Norman Rockwell painting. I mean, you look, but Things, I mean, at the start, things were looking pretty good, you know. Adam and Eve seemed to be a great couple. Then something happened. Drove them apart. Then something else happened, and they came together for just a little bit. Eve gave birth. But Adam's family was just a mess. Cain killed Abel, and then they had Seth. But God had said the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Abraham was a descendant of Seth. God said, in you and your seed, all the peoples, all the nations, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. Abraham had a couple of wives, two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And that's, if you watch the news, you know that's still not going so well. Still one messed up family. Isaac had one wife and two sons, Jacob and Esau. Talk about bad family dynamics. Jacob is like just a crook that swindles Esau. Then Esau threatens to kill him. Jacob had four wives and 12 sons. One of them, Reuben, commits incest with one of his. With one of his dad's wives, uh, ten of them sell one of them into bondage, slavery in Egypt. That's Joseph. One of them, Judah, has sex with a prostitute. It turns out to be his daughter-in-law named Tamar, and actually the great-great-great-great-great-great grandmother of Jesus, king of that tribe, king of Judah, king of the of the Jews. So talk about messed up families. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the very last on the list of fathers that you would expect to be interviewed on Focus on the Family. And yet, for a thousand years, God would identify himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Which makes you wonder, was there something in old Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Did God see something in those guys that he saw in himself? A thousand years later, David was a man after God's own heart. He had eight wives, 20 sons, and at least one daughter. For one of his sons, Amnon, raped his daughter, also named Tamar. Then Absalom, Tamar's full brother, took offense, raped David's wives on the roof for everyone to see, and then tried to take the kingdom from his father, David. But when Absalom is killed by David's troops, David is just inconsolable. Years before, David had killed Uriah in order to take Uriah's bride, Bathsheba, who was pregnant with his son. But David was confronted by the prophet, whose word cut him like a knife. The baby boy died. David wept and said that he would join his son in Sheol. And then Bathsheba got pregnant again with a second baby boy who lived, and he named him Solomon, Prince of Peace, the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. And right now, I'm just saying that Jesus had quite a family. Matthew records Jesus' genealogy from Abraham to Jesus' dad's uh, Joseph. And it's an eye opener. His family tree, especially the four women in the tree that he includes, would make any one of us blush. Luke records his genealogy from Jesus backwards all the way to Adam. So in Luke seven thirty seven we read, Luke, Luke, we, verse 24, we read this. He starts with the supposed son of Joseph, Jesus, the supposed son of Joseph, verse 24, to this in verse 37, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. you get that? Adam, the Son of God. Luke has just told us that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's going to tell us to it again in just a few more sentences, Jesus is the Son of God. And it gets weirder For as you know, Paul makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is the eschatos Adam, the ultimate Adam, last Adam, or super Adam. So he writes, as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. The first Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And it gets weirder. For as you know, Adam means man, or Or uh, as in in mankind. So women don't worry because Adam is male and female before God does this crazy thing with him. And so the whole Bible you see is about Adam. The name Adam appears 532 times in the Old Testament. Only 13 times is it translated as the name Adam. But it appears 532 times and and not just Adam but Ha-Adam which means like at least 140, probably more like 200 times, it's pointing out that there's one Adam, ha-Adam, the Adam, the Adam, as if all humanity is one man. And then we get to the New Testament, and weirdly, Jesus is that one man. And it gets weirder, for Jesus is not only the Adam, ha-adam, he calls himself the son of man, which means that if God is his father, man is his mother giving birth to him who is actually the one that all of us truly are. We are him and his mother and his brothers and his sisters when we do our father's will, which according to Scripture is the only thing that's ever actually really done. My point is that Jesus' family is Adam's family. And the Adam's family is us. So Jesus really is all about family values. But your family is not just the folks you grew up with. Your tribe is not just the Americans or the Germans or the English or whatever. Your family is Adam's family. And it turns out that your father is all about the Adams family values. So don't expect the family to look like this Norman Rockwell painting. Expect it to look a little more like this. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They're all together Okee. the Adams Family. The house is a museum, when people come to see them, they really are a scream, the Adams Family. Neat. Sweet. Petite. So get a witch's shawl on, a broomstick you can crawl on, we're gonna pay a call on, the Adams Family. No, sorry, but I just, I couldn't resist that. I was not allowed to watch The Addams Family as a kid because of the implied witchcraft. And listen closely, witchcraft really is evil. But I snuck a few viewings. And and what amazed me as a kid, at least about this show on, on TV, was that even though they were all freaks, they all loved each other. And they wouldn't give up on each other. And maybe that's what God saw in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even David. He, he saw himself and his seed. It just occurred to me this week that although each of those fathers' families were just filled with freaks who committed all sorts of heinous sins, none of those fathers gave up on any of their sons. Go back and read it. It's kind of shocking. They end up blessing all of them. In fact, in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the sons are reunited in the death of the father. Isaac and Ishmael bury their father together. Jacob and Esau bury their father together. All the sons of Israel bury their father together. All the sons gather to bury their fathers together. Even in the story of David, all of Judah and all of Adam will be reunited in the death of the son of David, the king of the Jews, the last Adam, from the bosom of the father. He's the promised seed, imperishable seed, hidden in the loins of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, not so that only a few would be blessed, but that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And so, as we saw when we studied Romans, history and the Bible have this hourglass shape, an hourglass on on its side, God begins with all humanity, but Adam is divided at the tree in the garden. Adam is driven from the garden, and God begins to isolate nations, and then tribes, and then families, all the way down. Isaiah preaches it all the way down to the root of David, who is the promised seed, the eschatos, Adam, Jesus. And what happens? We take his life on the tree in the garden. As he gives his life on the tree in the garden. And in this is love, imperishable seed planting in the darkest of soil. You know, Jesus was single. But he chose 12 disciples like the 12 tribes, and he treated them like family, and Peter was part of that family. But after Jesus rose from the dead, he made it abundantly clear to Peter that, hey, Peter, the family's way bigger than you ever imagined. And so, at Pentecost... All the tribes of of Israel, they come back together in worship filled with the Spirit of Jesus. And then at the house of Cornelius, the nations are filled with the Spirit of Jesus. And Peter says, the Lord has shown me that I'm to call no man common or unclean. And at the end of this letter, Peter will tell us that Jesus descended into the depths of the earth to preach to those that missed the boat in the days of Noah, quote, so that judged in the flesh, the way men are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So, God doesn't just save all of Israel that happens to be alive at the end. He saves all of Adam that was blown apart in the beginning, at the fall. See, I think Peter believed that his friend Jesus was actually the Savior of the world, the whole world. And that the leaves on the tree of life and the new Jerusalem coming down, which his fishing buddy John saw, were, were for the healing of the nations. For as John heard the Lord say, Behold, I make all things new. So Peter is focusing on the family. He's focusing on Adam's family, the family of man. In our first message, we saw that Peter was talking to Gentiles. Remember? As if they were Jews. For God became a tribal deity to reveal that all humanity was his tribe. He's the king of the Jews and the king of all creation. In our second message, we notice that Peter didn't apologize for suffering, but eulogized, good worded, eulogized God in the midst of suffering, as if Peter had an entirely different view of reality. We talked about the gestalt shift, and we used these examples. Adrian Monk thought he was dying, and the counselor helped him see that he was actually being born. And the moment he realized that absolutely everything, even though it was the same, it changed. The meaning changed. And we talked about this picture of the old woman and the young showgirl. When you see one instead of the other, that's called a gestalt shift or a paradigm shift. Everything remains the same, and yet everything's entirely different. It has a new meaning. We could take a long time. I could take a long time explaining every little bit about that picture. That that, Well, the ear is actually an eye, and the nose is actually a chin. And we could talk about that for for a long time, but, but you wouldn't even know what I was talking about until the paradigm popped and all of a sudden you saw it. And we talked about this picture and how the paradigm pops when you see one color as the ground rather than the figure on top of the ground. So so you could think I'm talking about the two faces opposing each other, or you could think I'm talking about the cup in the middle, perhaps filled with wine, blood red wine. And we talked about this picture. The most challenging of all Gestalt shifts. Where's the ground? Who's the ground? Who is it that does not change? The one on the tree, the the ones on the. Who's good, who's evil? Who's alive and who's dead? Whose judgment is this? And where's Adam? On the ground? In the tree? Or both? In all my years of Christian education, you know, growing up in a church and going to seminary, In all my years of Christian education here in America, I don't remember anyone clearly teaching about all the verses that teach that God will make all things new. I mean, maybe we sang it. It was in the songs, but nobody believed it. And I don't remember anybody teaching that God would do this through Jesus, the last Adam. But now, what if we read the Bible with more than traditional American family values? What if we read the Bible with the Adams family values? Not the 2D Adamses, like the one on TV. It's funny, I read this in Wikipedia, that in the show, they were really embarrassed that they were related to the 1D Adamses. But what if we read it with uh, the 1D Adams family values. Like the Adam's like the one in the Bible, the family of Adam, the family of man. First Peter 1, 13 through 25. Now we could preach for hours on concepts in each one of these verses, but we're not going to because we already have. And because the paradigm doesn't pop until we kind of see all of the things together, okay? So 1 Peter 1, 13, therefore, Preparing your minds for action. Now, listen closely. The ESV is really a good translation. And we can see why the translators would translate this way. But Peter doesn't write, preparing your minds for action. What Peter literally writes writes is, girding up the loins of your mind. When a fisherman or a soldier would go to work, they'd gird up their loins by taking their robe and tucking it up into their belt so they could run or they could work freely. But Peter, you see, isn't saying gird, gird your loins in order to do something. He's saying the thing that I'm telling you to do is gird up the loins of your mind. Repent is what that means. That is, have a paradigm shift of epic proportions. And then stuff's going to begin to happen. Therefore, girding up the loins of your mind and being sober-minded, wake up, set your hope fully on the grace like a cup of red wine that literally is being brought to you. And, Epsilon knew, the revelation of Jesus, Yeshua, God is salvation, Christ, as obedient children, being not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also, and the verb is ginomai, kind of like monogenes, be becoming holy in all your conduct. What are our former passions? says, so, you know, not conform to your former passions. Well, there are a million ways to say it, right? But aren't they to take the fruit on the tree, the good on the tree, which is the life on the tree, and consume it? As if it were simply your own Aren't those passions to take knowledge of the good in order to justify yourself, save yourself, and create yourself in the image of God? And what is the holiness of God? Well, isn't it that when we take His life, He gives His life, for He is the life, and the life is in the blood, It's the revelation of God who is love. That's holiness, You know, religious leaders will try to tell you that holiness is all sorts of things. Like the shape of your hat. Or whether or not you eat bacon. I love this picture. This is why you should be a Christian. We have funny hats. And we eat bacon. We get bacon. We have the best tribal markers. But that's not holiness. God took 1,500 years to define holiness. Holiness is what happens in the Holy of Holies between the cherubim in the depths of the temple at the edge of eternity and time. And this is love. Not that we love God, but he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, the monogenes. Holiness is the grace of God. It is steadfast love, hesed, relentless love. Some people think that means, and some people think that I'm saying that we should never, because God is, that we should never fear God. But this is what I'm saying. Fear God, not because he might not love you. Fear God because he will never, ever, 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 ever stop loving you. Fear God because he is love, and we obviously don't love love. As he who called you is holy, you also be becoming holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you will be holy for I am holy. Will be is just a simple future indicative verb. That means it's not just a wish. It's not even a command. It's a statement of fact. It's the word of God and the judgment of God. You will be holy as I am holy, for you will be made in the image of God. I said, uh, let us make man, Adam, in our own image and likeness. And so you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's not your choice. Your decision. Your judgment. That's God's choice. God's decision. God's judgment given to you at a tree, in a garden. So fear God because his judgment is inviolable. (laughs) Love that word. I had to look it up. Inviolable eternal fact. In other words, you can't escape it. You can only hide from it for a time in outer darkness, which is ultimately nothing and nowhere because his judgment is called reality. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, ergon, works, conduct, behave yourselves without fear throughout the time, the chronos of your exile. Fear God because he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Impartially according to each one's deeds. My Calvinist tribe likes to say that God chooses some for salvation, And doesn't choose others for salvation according to no merit of their own, but according to his free will, which sounds an awful lot like random will. Which would mean that chaos is king. The Armenian tribe likes to say that God allows us to choose because we have free will. Which is defined as a random will. Which means that chaos is king in us. And God must submit to the chaos in us. They both like to say that, you know, you happen to pray this little prayer. Well, you'll pass through judgment and all your deeds don't matter because you're a child of God saved by grace through faith. Faith, which they define as saying this little prayer. But if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, writes Peter. We Protestants have made a ridiculous distinction between faith and works. Which every father knows is ridiculous once he understands what faith actually is. Faith, quite simply, is trust. Faith is not answering a question correctly at the back of a pamphlet or a tract. It's trust. So if I say to my son, don't take dope. Don't do drugs. And he says to me, okay, dad, I trust you. But then he takes fentanyl and gets busted by the police and have to bail him out of jail, I have a right to say to him, you obviously don't trust me. In other words, your faith is a lie. And now I'm taking your driver's license and the car for a time. Psalm 6 to 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and steadfast love, relentless love. Hesed belongs to you, O Lord, for you will repay. You will render. You will render to all according to their work. He will render to all according to. To their work. What will he render? Steadfast love. And what does he require? Steadfast love. And who is he? Well, he's steadfast love in perfect freedom. And he's making us in his image. With what? himself. I have four wonderful and utterly unique kids who, as far as I know, have not taken fentanyl, but have definitely done their share of crap. And I hope they think that I judge them impartially according to their deeds. That does not mean, because this would be awful, that does not mean that I want all their deeds to be just the same. It means that I want all their deeds to be done in love. I actually don't care about fentanyl. I had some last week. It was awesome. In fact, I had so much, I just passed out. They gave it to me right before my colonoscopy at the hospital. What am I saying? I'm saying I don't really care about fentanyl. I care that my children trust my love and so freely choose to love me in return. And likewise, they love each other in freedom. Not because I'm telling them they have to, but they want to. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear. You know, if my children's friends take dope, they don't have any reason to fear me. Why? Because I just don't love them all that much. But my kids, my family, I'm willing to bleed. I'm willing to bleed whatever it takes from my family, body, body, and blood flesh and blood and and if you're a part of Adam's family you see you're a child of God and he will bleed for you so if you call on him as father you know your father is still your father whether or not you choose to call on him as father or even part of his household Or have exiled yourself to a far country trying to convince yourself that he doesn't even exist. Conduct yourselves, behave yourselves with fear throughout the chronos, the chronon of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed, not might be ransomed, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood. So fear God, for you were ransomed with the blood, his, his blood. You are worth everything to him for the life is in the blood. His life is in the blood. Theologians have argued for centuries over this ransom and to whom God would pay this ransom. Some have argued that he pays it to the devil and then others have said, well, why would God owe anything to the devil? And so others have said, well, he pays the ransom to himself because he's not only love, he's also this thing called justice, which then they define as the very opposite of love. So they picture God the Father as the just God and God the Son, you know, as a really loving God. So God the Father demands the blood of God the Son in order to feel better about you, which turns the father of the Adam into a monster and God the Son into the opposite of God the Father rather than the very revelation of God the Father from the bosom of God the Father who is one with God the Father. But check this out. Peter just told us to whom the ransom is paid. It's the reason that we drink blood that's wine and wine that's blood in every service. He, he ransomed us from our own feudal ways, inherited from our forefathers. We have each been imprisoned in our own flesh, a prison of flesh built with fig leaves, faithlessness, and ironically, fear. We built the prison since the day we ate of it. Or in the day, to be more accurate, that we ate of it, because this is still that day. When we take knowledge of the good to make ourselves in the image of God, we take the life of God and we imprison him in a tomb that is our ego. But even as we take the life of God, God gives the life of God, And when we come to know the life of God, who is the grace of God, we begin to love as we have been loved. In other words, we die with him and we rise with him. We surrender our life, which is actually his life, back to him revealed on the tree, which is a throne. On the throne is the heart of God from the bosom of the Father who gives us more life, not a little life, but an eternal river of life, life that's in the blood, blood that flows between all the members of the Adam's body. Life is not the survival of the fittest. It's not winning by making others lose. It's not exalting yourself by humiliating somebody else. It's not trying to be first by making others last. That's not life. That's death. That's the lie. Embedded in the lonely flesh that we have inherited from our forefathers, which keeps us all imprisoned alone within the depths of ourselves. But maybe not the very depths. But anyway, life is not the survival of the fittest. And, and trust me, I was geology major, so I hope you understand what I'm saying. Even biologists wouldn't say that. Life is actually the sacrifice of the fittest. The sacrifice of the fittest for all. In this is love, and it's love that binds all things together, and God is love. Anyway, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, the last chronos, chronoid, for the sake of y'all. What Jesus did on the cross is the revelation in time of who it is that he always is in eternity. He is how God shapes us in his own eternal image, makes us in his own eternal image. And and every parent knows that the pinnacle of a child's creation is the creation of a good free will in their child. Which is the revelation, there's another way of saying it, of, of faith, hope, and love in that child. And you don't create those things but you can bleed those things into your child the way that God bleeds them into you. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of y'all, who through him are believers, through him are believers in God, faithers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls in, Epsilon new, and then the obedience of the truth, and Jesus is the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, singular, that's one heart. Having been begotten again, not of perishable spora, seed, but of imperishable. Now, this is fascinating, but this is the only place. It's a hexalegomagon or whatever the theologians. This is the only place in the whole Bible that this word appears, spora. It means seed. But it's weird because it's a female noun. There's There's another word for seed, too. It's a female noun referring to what has been sown. In every other place in the New Testament, seed is the neuter noun, sperma. Sperma and spora. Having been begotten again, not of perishable spora, but of imperishable spora through the living and abiding logos, word of God. And St. Paul taught us in Romans, right, that that's the sperma of God. Sperma and spora. You see, I, I don't know for sure, but it seems like Peter is implying that we all have an imperishable female seed. Placed within us by God as he breathed his breath, his ruach, female into us at the beginning of our time. A seed like an egg in the temple of our soul, like maybe behind a curtain. But when the Word of God, that is the sperma of God, is implanted us at the cross, or perhaps preached to us, that curtain rips. And we are begotten from above, and the life of God then begins to fill that That empty old temple, fill the temple that each one of us actually is a stone tomb that is actually a womb that gives birth to who it is that we actually are. Verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word, Rama, now that's like the logos in space and time are spoken in a moment. The, the word of the Lord remains forever into the age. And this word is the good news that was preached to you all. First Peter 4, 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So fear God, because He is the Father of all. As a father, nothing would infuriate me more than one of my children telling another one of my children that I may not love them, and that in fact I might endlessly torture them, as I was currently doing with their former brothers and sisters. On that day, the last Adam will say, whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. That judgment is a fire that will burn away all flesh and purify all faith in our Father who is perfect love. So fear God. And only God. God. This is what the Israelites got in trouble for. It's in Leviticus. They feared other gods. Fear God and only God until perfect love, who is our Father, casts out fear. Then, fear not. For there is no fear in love. Who is the fire and comes to us as a word. So on the night that he was betrayed... The eschatos Adam took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take it and eat it. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup. And he said, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of, of sins. Drink of it, all of you. That's what he said. Drink of it. All of you. And now just one more time. Take a look at the last Adam. On that tree. And the children of Adam on the earth below. Is God saying that some of them are righteous. And others are not righteous. Or is he saying that all are unrighteous. Except the one on the tree. Who in the words of Paul has become our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That is our ransom. All the same words. Is the word saying that some are his family. And some can never ever be his family. Or is he saying that all are his family. And he is the logic and the life that binds them all together in love, which is the good, and now you know it. Is he the good God being tortured by the evil God? Or is he the revelation of the one God, the heart of God, from the bosom of the Father who has made him known? And now here's a gestalt shift. Look what God, our Father, has prepared for dinner. (laughs) It's not a turkey. It's himself. For you see, the biggest threat to the family of Adam is not another family. (laughs) There is no other family. The biggest threat to the family of Adam is the lie that our father is not good. And so he cannot be trusted. And some of us do not belong at his table. CNN reporter Peter Arnett was in the West Bank several years ago. An explosion went off bodies and blood were everywhere. A man came running to him, holding this little girl in his arms. And he just began to plead with him, please, please, mister, please, he saw he was depressed, please help me, help me get her to the hospital, help me get her to the hospital right now. And so Peter Arnett put him in the the van, and as they're driving to the hospital, the entire way, this man is just yelling, faster, faster, I'm losing her. When they got to the hospital, the doctors took her right into the emergency room. And then Peter and this man sat on this bench in in the waiting room. A short time later, the doctor came out and he said solemnly, she's dead. And the man just came utterly undone with tears. And as Peter put his arm around this man, he said, I do not know what to say. I can't even imagine what you must be experiencing because I have never lost a child. That sobbing man looked up at Peter, collected himself, and then he said, That Palestinian child is not my child. I'm an Israeli. But, mister, there comes a time when we each have to realize that every child is a daughter or son. There there must come a time when we realize that we are all family. There must come a time. We are the family of Adam. Repent. Repent. And people ask, what difference does that make? Well, it was the last Adam that was weeping those tears in that man. And those tears have the power to do everything, to do everything that's anything. Because, you see, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and does not fail. Brown cups are wine, blue cups are juice, and they're both blood. Amen. Yes, I'll fly away. Yes, I'll fly away. So when I die, hallelujah, by and by I'll fly away. But I'm already dead. So that day when I die would be the final death of death and the beginning of life. And I'll fly away. But I'm not flying right now. And why is that? Well, it's because the body is cut into all these pieces. (laughs) And you see, that's why I know people were used to get mad at me. Like, why is this important, Peter? Because at first, this all started the sanctuary because I'm like this, we cannot abide this doctrine of eternal torment. Why is that? Well, because Adam is one man, the family of man. My body can't fly, it can't rest if just this little finger is roasting over a flame. So I either have to put out the flame or I have to become an entire creature of fire, which is, you know how Jesus shows up in the Bible, filled with fire. But I can't rest if part of my body is missing. And so that's why the doorway from space and time into eternity is the cross. And people that are in a darkness are still in time and haven't, crossed over into the by and by, which is eternity, which in somehow kind of miraculous way is now that we can even enter into in moments in faith. And when we do, what is it that we experience? Well, when all of my body, not just my physical body, but when all of my, when all of my body is in unity, When each part bleeds into the next part, which is called forgiveness, when each part sacrifices itself for the next part, I experience something, and the thing I experience is ecstasis, ecstasy, joy, pleasure. And that's what you were made for, Adam. So in Jesus' name, repent. Or Another way to say that is simply, Believe the gospel. Amen.